1: Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. We've got Sarah Forte on the line. She's a labor and employment lawyer and founder of Forte Law. Now, since 2004, she's practiced exclusively in the areas of employment labor law, that's what we're going to talk about today. She focuses on solving work-related problems, everything from hiring to firing, and everything in between. Uh, Langley kid, uh, 12 years of working for leading firms in Vancouver, back in November 2016, took the leap to open up her own firm and now has offices in Surrey and Langley. Uh, Sarah's very active in business and legal community, as well as a frequent author and speaker on employment law and other topics. Sarah, we're so happy to have you on the show. So let's Let's start. I know I've used an employment lawyer over the years, um, really just one specific time, because in this business, radio business, uh, you're only as good as your last gig, newscast, commercial, whatever it is. And, uh, I needed some help with that. So, um, so I'm sort of familiar with it, but, but what are the, what are the parameters? When do you know you need to get an employment lawyer?
0: I'm going to answer that question from the perspective of an employee because, of course, both parties sometimes need advice, the employee and the employer. Um, But when I'm advising individuals, most frequently it's when their employment has come to an end. Uh, Employees will call me for advice if they think they're about to get fired, or even more frequently after they've been fired. Sometimes they come with a severance package in hand, and they're hoping for someone to take a look at that and let them know what's fair or what's reasonable for their situation. Um, when I'm advising employers, like companies, um, they'll call me often also around the time when they're thinking of letting someone go. Um, sometimes they'll call me after they've received a legal claim by an employee. And companies will also hire me proactively to prepare employment contracts or policies. Um, I'm getting a lot of requests for bullying and harassment policies and sexual harassment policies um, and a lot of requests about drug and alcohol policies with, with marijuana in the workplace being in the news.
1: Yeah, that's a huge new topic for everybody, isn't it?
0: It is. It's definitely a topic of interest. We're getting lots of questions, and the landscape has been changing daily, weekly for months. I would say the last year, there's been evolutions all the time in terms of what's happening. So it's it's hard but important to keep up to date. Can we
1: talk a little bit about that right now? Because I hadn't even thought about that. Um, just because you know I have my own personal biases around it. What what are the sort of things that you're telling? employers, I guess, to start with about it.
0: Sure, when employers are calling and asking lots of questions and, and very concerned about how the legalization of marijuana is going to impact their workplace. Um, in, in large part, my advice is, well, for starters, at, at least at this point, it's, it's still not legal. Um, I think the anticipated date is in October. Um, the, but when that does come in, then we're going to be looking at marijuana and treating it in a similar way to alcohol, um, and and what that means is you, as an employer, still don't have to permit employees to work if they're impaired, and, and that's the bottom line, and that's not going to change.
1: And you wouldn't be allowed, as a result of that, you it wouldn't be something that you could bring in your uh, into your place of employment. Just like it's not good or illy or against all the rules, depending on who you work for, to have it in your locker or in your cubby hole or in your office or something like that?
0: Well, the same rules would apply I that would apply to alcohol. Um, so that would be the, the way we would look at it. The only difference would be um, potentially if we're dealing with medicinal marijuana, where you have a legitimate doctor's prescription and you're using it um, to treat a disability.
1: Okay, yeah. See, that's another good point because there's nothing, alcohol never falls into that medicinal
0: um, category, does it?
2: That I've heard.
1: <laughs> I mean, sometimes I, I, don't
0: know. I sometimes hear people say they're going to take a drink after a, a long day or a bad day. Yeah. I don't know that my doctor has ever prescribed me to go home and have a glass of wine, but certainly mm-hmm. my friends do.
1: Yeah, yes, the, exactly.
2: self medicating is probably not too encouraged by the medical community, I, I assume. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and Sarah, we talked yeah. about you know re- retaining an employment lawyer when employment comes to an end. Um, and I wonder, you know, at the outset when you're starting new employment, I would think you know this is one maybe people don't think about as often. But can it be important to, to uh, consult with an employment lawyer, get them involved if you're starting a new position, look over employment contracts and things like that?
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm so glad that you asked that, Blair. I, I have to say this is this is one of my one of my Issues I'd like to see improved is I'd love to see more people calling in for advice before they sign an employment contract. Mm -hmm. Um, Employers get advice about employment contracts, and so one way to level the playing field as an employee is to make sure you're getting advice and going in eyes wide open. Um, Generally, employment contracts are written by lawyers for companies, and the companies are their clients, and so they're entirely one sided and they're meant to protect the company. Um, employees sign them. Sometimes employees don't even read them, um, and the contracts can really limit their rights.
2: For example, what, what type of things would, would someone have signed that maybe didn't realize?
0: Uh, so, frequently I see termination clauses. Those are common and, and totally legal and, and fair to put in an employment contract, but they really limit what you would be entitled to when the employment relationship comes to an end. The other thing that I see frequently is what we call non-solicitation or non-competes, I think they're they're more commonly known. And these are kinds of contract clauses that limit what you can do after you leave employment. Sometimes for up to a year or more after you leave a job, you can still have restrictions that follow you from the old job. Um, I I see people all the time when their jobs have ended, and the first thing I always do is say, can you send me a copy of your employment agreement? Mm -hmm. Sometimes people don't even know if they have one or they aren't able to get a copy, oftentimes people send me a copy and they're quite surprised to see what's in it when we review it together.
2: And is there any argument to be made, you know, if they didn't get legal advice at the time or didn't quite understand what they were signing, or is it, you know, they're, they're bound by their signature and that's kind of that?
0: Th- those kinds of arguments are hard to make, Blair. I, I won't say there's no circumstances where they could be made, but generally if you sign a contract, you're bound by it. Um, and, and we have to look for sort of some creative ways to deal with that. It's always better to make sure before you're, whenever you're looking at a contract of any kind, but particularly in employment, that you've read it, you're able to understand it, and if you're not, that you go and get some advice on that before you sign it.
1: This business of broadcasting, there's uh, uh, not everybody gets employment contracts or contracts, but um, some do, and there's a couple of things that show up all the time, especially the non-compete. If you're at one radio station and you've been fired and another radio station wants to pick you up right away, then you'll get those non-compete clause. And like you said, they can last up to a year. I know some people say, well, where's so-and-so? He's, he hasn't been on the radio for a really long time. <laughs> well, there's a reason why so-and-so or or uh, regardless whether it's a he or she hasn't shown up uh, recently. Uh, and that's because of that, because of that contract. Nobody wants you competing. Even if they don't want you, they don't want you competing against uh, them at the end of the day, which it's kind of selfish, I think, but it's interesting. And boy, oh, boy, you need to pay attention to that.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's lots of, we, we could talk for hours about that. You know, there are, from the company's side, they'll say, well, we invest a lot of time and training and, and we're going to teach you everything we know about this business. Um, and so if you then work for us for six months and quit and walk across the street and with the benefit of everything we've taught you, you know, that, that's kind of one of the prevailing considerations Judges don't like non-solicitation and non-compete clauses, so they're very hard for employers to win on.
1: Oh, that's interesting. Uh,
0: in, the the, in the end of the day, if they're there and they're in the contract, it can still create some significant problems.
1: Huh, that's very interesting. What are, the, are there clear signs when somebody should seek advice from you uh, if they're in a workplace right now and they're listening to this, what are the kinds of things that they need to pay attention to? And I know you're sort of wearing both hats at this point from an employer's point of view and an employee's point of view, but
0: is that, is that a, a fair question? Yeah, that's definitely a fair question, and I'm, I'm quite comfortable wearing both hats. I take them on and off all day long. So, <laughs> um, you know, when might you want to seek advice? Um, frankly, most people come to me after they've been fired, so that's a really clear space Pr- pretty emotional know, time too wow you, yeah and you're not you're, your world is upside down uh, and you're not sure whether what your rights are and whether what you're being offered is fair or reasonable if you're being offered anything at all so that's a really obvious time um, and that's as i said when most people come to see me another time when when people will come to see me is if they um, have a disability of some kind and physical or mental illness that's that's maybe impacting their work, and um, they feel that the employer isn't accommodating that, um, or work, or they're maybe being mistreated because of it. Um, similarly, um, you know, I see pregnancy discrimination or um, different different forms of discrimination. Uh, that are happening at work that's a time when you can get some legal advice and, and help put a strategy in place to solve the problem
2: and I imagine clients as, as I'm sure you know as someone who's just been fired they're very emotional it's a tough situation if someone feels in a tenuous relationship with their job they might be nervous of uh, you know starting to get somebody involved you know bring a lawyer into the situation um, how do you discuss with somebody that you know it's actually it's making their position stronger by showing you know that they know their rights they've got someone to advocate on their behalf as opposed to them worried well my boss will see that I've got a lawyer now he's going to look for just another reason to to get rid of me.
0: Yeah, so almost virtually without exception, I am behind the scenes. Mm. So if you call a lawyer and go see a lawyer, unless you authorize that lawyer to disclose that, no one is ever going to know that you've seen a lawyer. Right. So uh, that solicitor-client confidentiality is something you've probably heard of, and that that is a fundamental part of our job as lawyers, is keeping things quiet when people come to see us. Um, in most cases... Um, my involvement with people is an initial consultation, a meeting where we go through, we, I listen to their whole situation, and um, we go through it beginning to end. I help them identify their goals, like are they hoping to fix things at work and stay? Are, are they ready to leave and are hoping for a package? Have they already been left, and what have they been offered? Um, we identify the goals, and then we look at the legal tools, and I help them make a strategy that is going to move them towards their goals. So it's actually uh, people are quite surprised. I think that that's that that's the approach. It, it's not sort of me getting on the phone to their employer the next day and and swooping in um, because often that creates more problems than solutions.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know that uh, it's it's really just advice uh, that one is seeking at that point. If you feel if you've already been let go and you're given a severance package. Um, is there some some key things? So let's say I've just been fired, uh, fortunately, hopefully not, but just been fired. What do I, um, what's the first thing that I should look for to know that I need to come and see somebody?
0: I guess the first question I would have when someone's been fired is, are you represented by a union or not?
2: Mm, fair if enough. If you are
0: represented by a union, um, the first step you need to do is reach out to your union. They're likely already engaged and aware um, and find out from them about your rights, which are quite different in a unionized environment than a non-union environment. People who come to see me are generally not represented by unions, and so they don't have that sort of built-in representation and advice. Uh, and I would say pretty much any situation where you've lost your job, unless you've been through it before and already received legal advice and understand the the nuances of the package you're being offered and whether it's fair or if you're not being offered a package, whether that's fair, um, I would say you should definitely seek legal advice. Good
1: advice, Sarah. I want to wrap up now. We'll be back with more right after this. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. On the line with us right now, Richard Moxley, a Canadian author, a terrific book. It's called The Nine Rules of Credit, How to Start, Rebuild, and Always Maintain Great Credit. Very accomplished guy. Richard, we're so happy to have you on the show today. Well, thank you um what's the the uh the topic for today is um you've helped so many people richard uh figure out their credit rating have you got some have you got some stories that you can share with us about uh the the situation the folks were in and and uh and how they sort of maneuvered their way through because i know that you've had lots of contact with people
3: Oh, yeah, I got lots of stories, and the great part about this is uh, my wife is tired of hearing about it, so now <laughs> I get to uh, have a captive audience. <laughs>
2: perfect, perfect. So, record, record it and play it the, over dinner, even.
3: <laughs> yeah, there you go, play it over and over. Um, so wh- one of the, the biggest things, or one of, uh, probably the most entertaining uh, stories that I have is a girl had to read my book and called me up, and she, was, she, she wasn't rude, but she was a little... Um, Upset, she said, "You know, I'm following these rules of credit, but I still can't get a credit card." And and she told me the the credit card company that she had applied with, and it just really didn't make sense that that she wouldn't get approved. And so I I said, "Well, let, let's grab your credit reports. I'll take a look and see what's going on." Uh, well, I figured out the reason real quick, and that reason was that she was dead, <laughs> <laughs> and so. Uh, she actually, on her credit report, her Equifax report, it was reporting her as if she had passed away,
1: oh, and wow. so
3: you can see why a credit card company would not approve her for additional credit. <laughs> yeah. and uh, you know, uh, we were able to get that rectified. Um, so now, I, I put on my business cards. You know, I can bring people back from the dead,
1: which is <laughs> nice. Kind of fun,
3: but
2: that's quite a but talent. Credit-wise,
3: just credit-wise, that's all I can do. But as uh, that that was definitely a. Uh not a common one, but a, a
2: funny one. Well, it's interesting that you touch on that, Richard, because in, in our practice at Sands & Associates, um, I almost can say there's more credit reports with errors than there are ones without errors. Um, I pull yeah. mine every year, and I find new addresses, new employers, things that have nothing to do with me. And I can understand there's so many millions of Canadians and millions of data points, uh, but even I have clients phone me and say, hey, this debt was in my bankruptcy. Why is it still reporting? And we go through and we help them correct it. But I think people have to know, you know you're, just because it's on your credit rating doesn't mean it's true. Yes. Yeah, it definitely happens.
1: Now I'm going to ask a rookie question here, you guys. Yes. How easy is it to check your credit rating?
3: So t- to check the credit, if you have a credit card with your name on it, it, yeah. is essentially pr- pretty easy. Uh, I'm, I, I should uh, preface that. I, when I did it uh, to show some consumers how to do it. I did a video explaining how and and to go through the ins and out, and and actually to be honest, it took me forty minutes to grab my own credit report off of the the, the consumer websites. Uh, so it it, it kind of depends. Um, okay. We actually just did it not too long ago, and it seems to have improved a little bit. But it kind of depends on on who you are and 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 the day of the week.
1: Got it. Fair <laughs> enough. That's yeah. a, that's yeah. a good enough answer for me.
3: So one of the other uh, common, much more common, and you had kind of uh, made reference to it, but uh, uh, Blair, I, I had a client that had called me up, and he had got my name from a trustee. And the, the problem he was facing was that he was getting declined for mortgage financing. So he was originally approved, but then something showed up on his credit report and he had already waived conditions so now he was on the hook for the mortgage and then this error came up and it was costing him a lot of panic and a lot of headache and if we didn't get it corrected would essentially cost him and his parents probably about forty thousand dollars uh with different fees and and uh payout penalties and and different things and he had to get his parents involved because he had no way of doing it and of course his parents love him and and want to help and so now they were on the hook and that was stressing him out even more because he felt like he was being taken advantage of but he didn't see any other way to avoid the lawsuit that would have came from running away from the mortgage financing so he gave me a call and i was really glad that he did because it was errors that had been left over from a proposal that he had entered into. And after three years, everything in a proposal can be removed. So the public record and any creditors that were included can be forced off the credit report. The problem is is that a lot of times that doesn't happen. And so that's where I was able to get involved. And within two days, we got everything corrected. And within a couple more days, he was able to get approved for best rates with a major bank. Wow. So, to give you an idea, he was going to be charged 8% with the lender because of where he was at. But because we were able to get the errors off, he then qualified with a major bank and was down to 2.75%. So, you can imagine he
2: was pretty happy. <laughs> yeah, I, I hope he left you a nice Google review on that one. <laughs> that,
3: he did, actually. Yeah. He's been great and he's been sending all his, uh, you know, the, the, re- The mortgage broker, uh, because he had three of them uh, that he had kind of gone through to try and find a solution, Uh, they were all uh, pretty amazed. And then the real estate agent, for sure. And so I've been getting lots of good uh, referrals from them.
2: Well, and I think part of it, too, is the calls that I get when it's about a credit rating, it's almost always urgent because they are literally yeah. in the mortgage broker's office or the bank's office or things like that. And for the average person that wants to correct something quickly, are they able to do that, Richard, or do they need to work with someone like yourself, a professional, to get really quick results if it's an urgent situation?
3: Yeah, and essentially that's why I started Credit Fix, which is uh, the full-time company that I do to remove errors and fraud. And there are avenues for People or the consumers to, to try and fix their credit report themselves. And you can definitely try that. Um, but if you're trying to get it done in a hurry, for sure, uh, this is something that I've never seen happen. Uh, they generally take anywhere between two to six months on average, is oh, well, kind of what weeks, my months. clients have told me. Yeah, a month. Okay. And so if, if you're in the thick of mortgage financing, uh, this is not a time frame that generally works well. And my history with mortgage financing really helped because I, I understand the process and because I know the lenders, I know the banks, I, I can talk with the broker or the, the mortgage specialist and, and I can interact with them and take it off the hands of the consumer so they don't have to try and be the third party or try and guess what's happening.
2: Oh, that, that's great. Um, and we're just down to about you know the last last few minutes or so, Richard. I wonder, would you want to give our, our listeners a sense of what services do you provide? Just in in a few seconds here.
3: Yeah, you bet. So th- there's really two major services that I provide. So when it comes to credit score, if if you're wanting to learn the rules of credit, what affects the credit score, then I can I can do that for you. We can grab copies of the credit reports, or you can provide them with me, uh, provide them to me, and then we can go through them in detail. I share my screen with you. You ask questions. I give you the answer. I'll ask questions just to make sure everything's correct. And then the other service that I provide is removing errors and fraud off the credit reports. So if you have something where you've tried to get it off, or (laughs) the whole financial situation is just where you, you just don't want to deal with it at all, then I can help a lot or a little, however, however you want me to get involved but I, I do have direct access to Equifax and TransUnion where you would call Equifax and get the Philippines mm-hmm. I get the actual Equifax people in here here in Canada and they know me very well <laughs> because that's all I do and we we get things done much faster than trying to get it done through the the typical typical scenario
1: Richard what's the best way for uh, someone to reach you how, how how's the best way to do that
3: So Probably the best way is email. Um, So you can find all my contact information at ecreditfix.ca. Great. And then uh, my email is just info at ecreditfix.ca. Uh, and my toll-free numbers on the website as well.
1: Excellent. Uh, so keep that in mind. eCreditFix.ca is the website to get a hold of Richard. Uh, Richard uh, Moxley, author of a book called The Nine Rules of Credit, How to Start, Rebuild, and Always Maintain Great Credit. He's on uh, Facebook and Twitter and all over the place. Richard, it's been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us.
3: Thank you for the invite.
1: We'll be back with more right after this. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. I just want to remind you, for information on any of the services that we talk about on the show, go to the website, sands-trustee.com. Fabulous website, loads and loads of questions and great answers uh, that may uh, help you along this process. You know it's always great to have somebody on the show a real person who's gone through either a bankruptcy or a consumer proposal and not only survived but benefited greatly uh, from the from the experience. Uh, sometimes their situation can resonate with people, and, uh, and you get an idea or feel something that, boy, that feels familiar to me. So we're on the show. Uh, we feel very fortunate to have a client of Sands & Associates to come forward and share uh, their story. And uh, we're going to hear from Maya. Hello, Maya. Hi, Elaine. So glad that you could be with us. Happy to be here. So I know that the first question we always like to ask folks that come forward that want to tell their story is can you describe to us the situation that brought you to Sands and Associates? I sure can.
4: Elaine, I had been, you know, struggling somewhat financially. Things had been tight for for quite a while due to circumstances that were completely beyond my control. But I was getting by. I was managing. Until the winter of nineteen fifteen to sixteen I became extremely ill. Two
2: thousand fifteen, I'm assuming, right? Yes. Yeah. 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 You
1: said nineteen Maya, so we were we oh, just wanted oh, to bring you forward. Yeah. <laughs> oh I'm giving away my age. Okay.
2: <laughs> Secrets out. Oh, yes.
4: Secrets out. That. No. Okay. Anyway, yeah, yeah it was two uh, fifteen to two sixteen. Sure. I became very ill and found that all of the extra expenses, and unless you've been very, very ill for a number of months, you just have no idea how many extra expenses there are. And it's not a time to to quibble about things. You get what is needed to survive through the experience. And I found myself going into my credit cards and then i found myself going for payday loans and before long it was like my whole life was revolving around trying to pay these huge interest payments on these these things
2: and Maya, just just pausing there for a quick second, because, you know, I know we hear a lot about in the United States, there are medically driven bankruptcies. And, you know, if you want to tell people what I do, they, they just assume, well, you know, there's, there's no medically driven bankruptcies or consumer proposals in Canada, because we got free health care. But, you know, I wonder, can you just give, give a sense, you know, what wasn't covered? Because I know from some of my clients, you know, it's the cost of, you know, whether it's physio or prescription drugs, or even hospital parking, there's all these little out of pockets. So what was that for you?
4: Yeah, well, there were those things, and then there there are medications that are definitely not not covered on the basic Medicare plan, and that can add up very, very quickly. Mm-hmm.
1: Absolutely. I think it's really important. Unless you've experienced it yourself, uh, there is a lot of things that aren't covered that aren't looked after.
4: A um, lot. Absolutely yeah. true.
1: And it sounds like you went from um, not being very well to sort of having that uh, exacerbated by having to worry about all this money situation and this money that you own. And I also wanted to mention, Blair, the fact that uh, Maya did payday loans and credit cards, that is not unusual, is it?
2: No, that, that's absolutely a cycle that we see, you know, basically all the way along. And it, it's almost kind of by ease of accessing credit. So, you know, credit cards are kind of tougher to get. You have to apply for, um, you know, once you're at, at the point where, you know, maybe, you know, you can't get another credit card, payday loans, you know, they'll give to almost anybody with, you know, very little checks, but they're also so expensive. And and my, yeah. I'm, I'm curious about your experience, but, you know, typically once people get one payday loan, it doesn't stop there. They have to get another to pay back the first one a third to pay back the second.
4: Oh, yeah. You're completely right there, Blair. It's a a terrible, vicious circle. And you're also right about the kind of stress this creates in your life. You know, you're trying to get better, and all you can think about is how can you pay, pay these things off. And, you know, you end up, oh, okay, I'd pay my credit card one month and then pay the payday loan the next month. And then something unexpected would come up, and I mean, I, I was in a real mess, and it was partly because I had always kept a very good credit rating throughout my life before, you know, being meticulous about paying my bills and everything, and becoming really ill like that was the first time where I, I was simply was not able to keep that up, and it was horrible for me, you know? it. I couldn't sleep properly. I didn't want to answer my phone. I didn't want to go out anywhere once I started feeling better.
1: You know, it's humiliating. Yeah, very hard on you for sure. Maya, how long was it before you figured out or sought some help or thought that maybe somebody could give you a hand, that, that you could go to somebody like Blair at Sands & Associates and, and get some help? Well,
4: Actually, um, I had seen an ad on television for another um, outfit. It wasn't something like Sands. It was, I think it was called, I I can't remember what it was, but I I met with a representative from that company, and they were very nice, and they told me about consumer proposals, and he thought that's what I should do. But they wanted um, $1,500 up front. And I was thinking, good grief, if I had $1,500 to give you right now, I wouldn't be in the situation I'm in. And I felt really, really discouraged at that point. And I can't even remember, it was probably on the Internet, that I saw an ad by Sands. And I thought, okay, this sounds too good to be true. Mm -hmm. But... I called up and got an interview with the lady who ended up being my trustee and from then on things just got so so much easier for me.
1: I want to I want to just interject here for a second. Blair this the first person or the first people that Maya talked to mm-hmm. and they were wanting to charge her $1500 yeah. that that isn't a licensed insolvency trustee. Am yeah. I right about that?
2: Absolutely right, Elaine. So, any licensed insolvency trustee, whether it's SANS or another firm, there's never a charge for your initial consultation. That's uh, right. you know,
4: but, s- you know, for people who, you know, get really discouraged yeah. when they, they run into that situation like that, like I did, that can end up, you know, being the end of trying to reach out for the
1: help. Absolutely. I'm so glad you didn't have $1,500, Maya. I am, too, now. I yeah.
4: really am, because I would have ended up doing the wrong thing for my situation and paying very steeply for it.
1: Absolutely. You know, so um,
4: My trustee at Sands yeah. explained the situation and, you know, the different things I could do about it, and we decided together what was really best for me at my age, at my time of life, what made more sense. And... We went from there, and it's just been so great.
1: And it was a consumer proposal that you ended up going with, it. am I right?
4: No, it wasn't. We decided that um, a bankruptcy would be the best mm-hmm. best route for me to take because I'm not at a point where I'm that terribly concerned about getting this wonderful credit rating Mm -hmm. again. I'm not planning to buy another home or a new car or anything like that. Got it. So it was like, just get a clean slate here and carry on from there. Lovely. And that was really the right thing for for me. It wouldn't be for, for everybody, that's for sure.
2: No, I think that that's really well said, Maya, and I think that's, you know, part of what I'm proud of at SANS. You know, we don't assume what someone wants to do or needs to do. We provide the information, you know, we'll help you make your decisions, say here's things to consider. But at the end of the day, it's what you choose to do to resolve your situation. That's what you're going to do. It doesn't matter our objectives. It's your objectives that, that carry the day here. Um, I wonder, Maya, can you give me a sense, you know, when you when you sat down you had the first meeting with us, what was your reality then? Were you getting a lot of, you know, collection calls? Were they threatening you with, with legal action? Um, because a lot of my clients, yeah, they're, they're just almost scared of their shadow by the time they come into the first meeting because of all the threats that have been made, some real and some imagined, you know, in terms of their validity here. What was your reality like? And then I want to contrast that with what happened once you started to work with them.
4: Yeah, well, my reality at that point and after meeting the person from this other outfit I was feeling really broken down and feeling prepared to walk out of there disappointed again. Mm-hmm. So it was a complete shock to me how, how easy things were, how, how beautifully she explained everything to me. And I think the best part was the way she listened She let me tell my story, and I found myself telling my story, the real story, for the first time to anybody, really, because I felt safe. It was a safe place for me to be, and there's not a lot of safe places for somebody who who is in that kind of situation.
2: Yeah, Maya, I think your, your words are so so just right on point there. You know, when I sit down with somebody, I can actually tell, you know, this is years that it's been up inside, and, you know, finally they can let it out, exactly. you know, sharing with me or with somebody exactly. else. But you do need yeah. that safety. You don't want to feel judged, and you want someone that can help, right? Otherwise, you're really exposing yourself. You're really hoping that, you know, there's going to be a better outcome.
4: Yeah, this is the big thing. I did not ever, not for a minute, feel judged. I was never scolded. Nothing like that. There was just... You know, it was very empathetic listening she she was doing with me, and it was a, a really important step. I needed that very much.
1: I know your situation is is unique, Maya, because you went you went the bankruptcy route with your uh, trustee. Are there some things that after going through the process that? impacted you in uh, about your financial you know how you handle your finances because it sounded like you were doing everything right beforehand it was the the illness that got in your way but was there any was there some of those things that you were able to take away or or was it just all good information that you'd already been using
4: what it was really it reawakened my my old sort of attitude about taking care of things i had pretty much given up I was just paying the bills, the credit card, the payday loans off my phone company, and whatever was left over, I would try and get enough to eat and whatnot, but it was was a real scramble. So I wasn't even trying to budget anymore. Got it. I didn't. I just paid everything off and whatever was left, I tried to live on it so for like almost a couple of years, I did no budgeting whatsoever.
1: Uh, The one thing about Sands & Associates, I just want to remind our listener that uh, their website is such a terrific place to start. There's so much good information on it. Uh, I'll give you the address at sands-trustee.com. We'll be back with more right after this. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. Hey, Blair, listen to this. As of 2016, Canadians made 32.3 million overnight trips. Wow. Okay, so we're overnight somewhere. Mm -hmm. 82% of that 32 million were for leisure. So what a great idea to do tips on how to travel on a budget cuz obviously tons of people are doing it
2: well yeah and travel is one of the joys of life for for many people so you know definitely for myself you know, a lot of the times I'm working so that I can plan the next trip and, you know, go off and see the world and different things like that. So, you know, I think travel can only expand horizons and make people happier, but you got to do it the right way. And, you know, ideally traveling on a budget, you're still able to achieve and see new cultures and experience new things without breaking the bank and without having, you know, a, a multi-month or multi-year financial hangover because of that trip of a lifetime that just wasn't planned.
1: And believe me, listener, Blair does big travel stuff. So he's <laughs> he knows of what he speaks. So- Budget? Do you do you need to be on a budget?
2: You absolutely do. Okay. Um, so it's, you know, if you don't know where you're going, any path will get you there. And if you don't have a budget for your travel, it's almost impossible for you to come home from the trip saying, well, gee, I really kept things under control. I spent less than I thought. Um, so really before you, you head out on the trip, just sit down, whether it's an Excel spreadsheet or a handwritten sheet, something like that, just figure out even, you know, just the big costs if you know, your accommodation, um, you know, your transit in between places, you don't need to schedule everything or organize everything down to the minute. There's no joy or fun in that, but you absolutely do you need to set a budget, um, if nothing else, just to give you a little bit of a guidepost of what you can and can't do on the trip.
1: And so many times, depending on 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 really depending on what you're doing, but often you have a pretty good idea of what this thing's going to cost because you're pre-buying uh, airline tickets, for mm-hmm. example, or at least the big one yep. to get you from wherever you are in British Columbia to somewhere else around the world. Um, and then the rest of the stuff for sure makes sense to have an idea. So plan the budget, budget the plan. Something, something like, like that. that. Yeah, <laughs> plan the work, work
2: the plan, plan the vacation. Yeah, <laughs> either way. Yep. And
1: yep. and often people yep. know how they like to travel too, mm-hmm. right? So some people love to do you know uh, bed and breakfast, for example, or uh, bicycle trips where it's an all inclusive thing, or go on a cruise or whatever. So you are getting lots of information. Uh, sometimes though, you don't get a chance to book uh, flights. Let's say you're somewhere in India and you're going from A to B and you actually can't buy that ticket until you get to A Mm -hmm. to get to B. So... Yeah, planning is is sounds like it's important to do because it could cost a huge amount of money otherwise.
2: Yeah, well especially in the domestic market, you know, travel companies or airlines or whatever, they really segment, you know, the business traveler they're gonna charge a whole lot more money to than the leisure traveler. And what's different about business versus leisure is that business doesn't book in advance. So if you're trying to book a same day airfare or something to leave tomorrow, flexibility, different things like that you're going to pay a big premium because that's a business traveler type of fare. Right. If you're able to book well in advance, you've got the plan, you've got the budget, you're probably going to save with, you know, early bird airfares or discounts on hotels, really the last minute. Sometimes you can get the screaming deals, but for the most part, prices are higher because of that business traveler they're trying to capture.
1: Okay. So Mr. World Traveler, mm-hmm. uh, what are the tips on, you know, how do you find out the deals? Where do you go? How, what do you do?
2: Yeah, for me, I'm a big fan of um, the online aggregator site. So what I mean by that is a site that's gonna check a bunch of other sites and do the work for me. So as annoying as the commercials are, Trivago I use quite a bit for hotels and I found, you know, some quite good deals there. Um, You know, for airfare, I like Kayak. So K-A-Y-A-K, again, they're gonna search all the airline websites, show you different options. And in both of those um, services, you don't pay anything extra for them. So if you know where to look online, again, Trivago is great for hotels. Kayak is very good for airfare. That's usually a good first step. And what I really like on both of these sites is you can set up price alerts. So I could say, you know what, my goal is I want to go to Costa Rica sometime next year, April to June, something like that. Tell me when the airfare gets below a certain point. You know, you don't have to buy it then, but at least you're monitoring it. It'll give you an email a notification of that.
1: Cool. Okay. What about, uh, and sometimes it's hard because if folks have children or, they, or, or their teachers or, or, you know, their work is kind of, not seasonal, but, you know, they're working September to June and they can only be away July and August. Um, that's hard. But I guess what's the alternative? Always travel in and off season?
2: Well, that's definitely an ideal if you're trying to travel on a budget and if you have flexibility then yeah, the, the time to go is typically not when everybody else wants to go. Um, so, you know, the peak of summer vacation is probably not when you want to be hitting Paris because probably everyone's on vacation there themselves and all the tourists are the only people that are
1: there. Right. The population of Paris goes from whatever it is normally <laughs> up yeah. to 25 million in July and August or something crazy like right. that.
2: Right. And it's hot and everything is crowded and you're exactly. paying more. Yeah. If you're able to do that same trip, you know, in the spring or in the fall. And again, unfortunately, typically kids are in school, which is why the peak times are when kids are not in school March break, Christmas, summers, and things like that. So if you've got flexibility, you'll definitely save some money by being able to try to travel in off-peak periods.
1: So accommodation savviness, Mm -hmm. uh, that's sort of taken on a new meaning nowadays because we have things like VRBO, uh, Airbnb, uh, house swapping. Well, I know lots of folks who do that.
2: Yeah, I'm such a fan of of all those services, you know, the sharing economy, so to speak. Uh, I was just working in my Nanaimo office last week, and instead of a hotel, I was able to get an Airbnb for basically the same price. It was, you know, a very nice uh, little apartment across the street from the office, more of a home than I would have felt, you know, in a hotel room and didn't cost me anything more. So I'm a big fan of that. Now, one thing, if people take nothing else away from this segment here for accommodation, is to look into hostels. So H O S T E L, okay, um, not just hotels. And I used to be actually be on the board of directors for Hostelling International for Canada. And hosteling is so misunderstood in Canada. Some people think, you know, maybe it's you know for homeless folks or indigent or different <laughs> things like that. Well, but no, no, it's
1: it's for young people who have backpacks and don't want to have a shower every day, isn't it?
2: Well, there is that. There's that. <laughs> (laughs) That segment, sure. The shower, I'm not sure about because that's all provided. But uh, one of the fastest growing group of hostlers is actually either retired or even age 55 plus. So hostels across Canada, there's over 50 of them. Some of them are in incredibly historic buildings. Um, There's one that may or may not appeal. It's in Ottawa. It's in a jail. So you can go, you know, to this, you know, live jail building and you sleep in a cell there, which is actually more cool than it seems. Um, The one in Whistler was actually part of the Athletes Village uh, for the 2010 Olympic Games. So if you think Whistler accommodation is completely out of reach, look into the Hostelling International Hostel in Whistler and you can get private rooms. You can maintain your privacy, but if you're okay, um, you know, to sleep in a dorm or in a a bunk bed and or sure. a bathroom, uh, you know, there are hostels you might be able to get for 20 or $30 a night. There's your accommodation sorted out even in a first world expensive country like Canada.
1: Oh, that's really, I had no idea. I wouldn't have even thought about that. I have, uh, you know, documentaries or, or Lonely Planet documentaries in my head of, of Thailand and hmm. Middle Eastern countries and you're, you know, just in there with everybody else and it's like, oh dear, I don't know if I could do that. So that's cool.
2: Mm-hmm. Very yeah. cool. Yeah, no, I think you definitely, the, I always joke that, you know, the extra S there instead of hotel hostel, it stands for social. So the idea if you're in a hostel is you're not going straight to your room, lock the door and that's that. Um, it's that you're ideally meeting other travelers. You're having adventures. Hostels often organize different tours and experiences um, that, you know, you really wouldn't be able to find out of, out of many hotels. And definitely you wouldn't get the same social atmosphere as well.
1: Now you've got a big section in our notes on this topic about uh, eating and where to eat, how to eat, and where to eat, which I think is pretty interesting.
2: Yeah, it's really easy to blow your, your budget on food, especially if you're traveling around and you're looking for the comforts of home, and maybe that means McDonald's or Starbucks or different Western chain restaurants and things like that. Um, So obviously if you're traveling, hopefully you're not doing that, um, but do be aware of how much money you can save. If you have a place with a kitchen like an Airbnb or in a hostel, there's always a shared kitchen as well. Right. Um, So just trying to, you know, to deal more with snacks that you buy at a grocery store or a farmer's market, you know, pack for your day rather than just dealing with the immediate convenience um, and, you know, just buying things on the spot.
1: Cool. And the last two things, which I think are totally worth mentioning, uh, even if we just sort of briefly mention them, uh, uh, not, not buying so many souvenirs.
2: Yeah, take home photos, not souvenirs.
1: It's not a bad suggestion, you know. Yeah,
2: if, you, if you think about, you know, that moment when something seems really cool, what are you going to do with that for the rest of your life? You know, your little snow globe or whatever it is, not to, you know, belie people that, that you know, connect snow globes. Right, but, um, <laughs> exactly. Generally, most souvenirs don't have a lasting value. They're usually not made locally anyway. So um, typically take a photo, have the memory, have the experience, move on from there.
1: Uh, go to the uh, Sands & Associates website. It's sands-trustee.com. They've got loads of information, good questions questions, lots of answers on a a debt situation that you may be encountering yourself or know someone who is. Uh, They've also got the 1-800 number there, and I'm going to give that to you right now, 1-800-661-3030 for that free consultation and to find an office near you.